Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. One, two, three, four. Today's guest is Duncan Yellowlees, founder and director of Duncan Yellowlees Training and the self-described chaotic good of research presentations. Welcome to the Research Beat. We're here today with Duncan Yellowlees, director and founder of Duncan Yellowlees Training. Duncan, it's a pleasure to have you. Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's good to be here. Duncan, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? So I run a business which specializes in training researchers and academics in presentation skills and you know standing up and talking to people. So everything from storytelling through you know standing up and waving your arms around to, to PowerPoint and how you do data display and how you think about communicating data. Uh, because kind of let's face it, academics have got lots of fascinating stuff to talk about but often they're not very good at talking about it. Um, and that kind of process exists internally in academia. So I help people with conferences and using public speaking to kind of boost their academic career and kind of get them up the ladder a little bit and get them noticed, but also with public engagement type work or science communication or industry collaboration when you're communicating your work outside of academia to people who maybe don't know that world in quite the same way. Can you give us a specific example of how you might help somebody who comes to you Cool. So one of the ones actually just the other day, I had a group from Glasgow University come to me who are putting together, they are making a website mm. with comic strip all about how virology and how viruses work and how the virus can, viruses and the immune system interact and how that kind of process works. And we had a little one-to-one -one kind of coaching session chatting through various storytelling techniques or kind of storytelling frameworks and structures that they could use to start mapping out what sort of narratives they wanted for these comic strips so they can start kind of adding detail and fleshing them out so kind of giving them starting places to think about narrative think about storytelling thinking about why storytelling is effective why it makes us interested and, and, and connects us to things so that's one kind of example on a one-to-one -one level a lot of my work is going into universities so i get brought in by graduate schools or by doctoral training partnerships research groups to come and do training for, for the whole group uh, so for a group of PhDs or postdocs, again, looking at just that kind of skills and confidence to help them. You know, if you go into your first conference, it's terrifying. You don't know what to do. Nobody, nobody helps you with this stuff, right? All the way through an academic career, nobody sits down and goes, this is how to do it. And, and it's okay to do this and, and maybe avoid doing that. Nobody gives you that help. So that's kind of why I exist, because it's then expected of you in an academic career to speak to lecture, to teach, to go and present, to pitch ideas, to pitch products, to, you know, a pitch for funding and that kind of thing. It's part of the job, but nobody really supports researchers in doing it and doing it well. So I go and do kind of group work. I also have online courses that people can access and I run a research community as well, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. So you're touching on something there, which we'll pick up on later, creative ways of communicating research to the wider world. And this is quite an issue, actually, and we'll get to it. But I would like to ask you first, how did you get into this field in the first place? And what was your journey from academia into helping other academics with presentations? <laughs> so long and winding, as these sort of journeys always are. Um, and actually, I don't, I've got a master's degree, but I don't actually think of myself as having been in academia. I wonder if that's one of the, the odd things about a master's and other PhD is, you know, you don't. I don't, I'm not sure. I, I, when I was a master's, I didn't feel like I was doing academia. I felt like a, the next step. Um, so I, I've always done theatre. I've always performed. When I was a kid, I did lots of youth theatre, you know, running around in, in cold church halls, playing drama games on the weekend and, and improvisation games. So kind of built my confidence there. I'm kind of one of life's natural show offs. And so that was a, a sensible place for me to go. And then I went to do mechanical engineering at Edinburgh University. Edinburgh, for those of you who don't know, has an incredible theatre scene because the Edinburgh Festival Fringe goes there every year in August. It's happening right now as we record this, which is a huge arts festival. So the student theatre societies in Edinburgh are incredible. And I did an awful lot of theatre there while I was studying. 
Uh, I think I did something. I was involved with 21 shows in four years or something. Absolutely tons of stuff. But stopped performing and started directing when I was there. So helping actors, getting the most out of them, helping them find their characters, helping them, you know, find the moments and the pauses and, and kind of get the most out of their, their performances, which I really enjoyed and I loved. Then I wanted to be on telly. Uh, I decided I wanted to be the Brian Cox of the history of engineering. Um, if anybody is listening from the UK, you may remember an old television celebrity called Fred Dibner, who is a Yorkshire chap who used to go around blowing up old mine shafts and talking about the industrial revolution and, and driving traction engines and steam trains and that kind of thing. And I wanted to be a, a kind of young, exciting Fred Dibner talking about the history of engineering because I loved engineering. I loved the stories behind behind it. Uh, and I love communicating and talking about it. And I'd seen some theatre pieces that were that kind of historical storytelling biography piece, which I thought was really cool. So I thought I should go and learn something about the history of engineering, history of science, uh, if this is what I was wanting to do. So I went off and did uh, a master's in the history of science, technology and medicine. But that had a, a, a module that was science communication. And I learned a lot about science communication, mostly made me very cynical about science. But my dissertation then was looking at theatre and can you use theatre to communicate science. And when I finished that, I, I finished the master's as everybody does who kind of has these journeys, you know, you, you sit around going, well, what do I do now? Right. I'm a I'm a theatre kid with an engineering degree and a history master's. Where, where does that put me? What is, what box do I go in? And luckily, the box that I got into was working at the Centre for Life, which is a science centre, kind of like the Science Museum kind of space in Newcastle in the northeast of England, which is where I live. And I got a job there writing science demonstration shows for the public. So, you know, school groups and the public come in and we do shows doing, you know, setting fire stuff and blowing things up and demonstrating scientific phenomena. And I was writing those shows, training our presenters to present them and and creating demos and designing props and that kind of stuff. So it kind of ticked all of these, these boxes. It was exactly the right fit for me at the time. And I was there for a few years. And then towards the end of that, I started, the, the organization started hiring me out to local universities to train them in public engagement work and train them in talking to people. So I kind of knew there was this market for it. And when I would had enough of being employed, I thought I would set up my own thing and uh, yeah, go and do it. I've always been, you know, much more interested in the communication bit rather than the science bit of science communication. So what I do now, I don't I don't work in Psycom specifically anymore. I work broadly across all kind of disciplines and sectors and I really enjoy it. Uh, research communication is really my kind of space. So yeah, that's how I ended up doing this. Well, I think first of all, Fred Dibner is an outstanding inspiration to have. And is wonderful that you found a way to intertwine your various interests. And I wonder if you think that your story is emblematic of a wider problem in academia that perhaps many people don't quite know what to do with the experience they've gained when they come to the end of their time within the academic world. Oh, 100%. It's, it's something terrifying, like 0.45% of PhD students go on to be professors or, you know, you, you, the majority of people who, who get a PhD or get a doctorate don't don't stay in the system. And that's partly because in many ways this is, the system sucks. Uh, and it's, it's you know, it can be an absolutely terrible work environment and toxic and awful in lots of ways. But uh, it also, you know, doing full-time research is not the same as studying. And although kind of a, 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 PhD, a master's and then a PhD trains you into doing full-time research, when you start applying for grants and things, that becomes a very different uh, thing as well. And running a lab is very different or running a, um, a, a research group is very different again. So the kind of doesn't really prepare you necessarily, I think, for, for what's going on. But also, yeah, as I say, it's not a great work environment for lots of people. There's lots of travel involved. Often academic jobs are few and far between and you have to move location quite drastically to get to them, which doesn't work for everybody and what people want to do with their lives. So yeah, lots of people leave. And I think there is a gap in the education about what skill sets you get from being in academia that are useful to the outside world because they really are. The stuff you learn as a, as a researcher is incredibly powerful. Even, you know, doing my degree, engineers are taught to be problem solvers. So that's something I kind of carried with me and got me into a lot of jobs. But I think 
the ability to research, the ability to to manage your own time and solo work and focus down and get things done and produce written documents, uh, not to mention all of the kind of soft skills about writing and technology and you know, communication that you can learn doing a PhD. I think there is a lot of skills there that academics don't necessarily recognize that they've got because weirdly academia doesn't value the skills. Academia values the, the research output and the ideas you come up with and the papers you produce and puts less value on the whole host and whole range of skills that you've got. Whereas if you leave academia and come to the outside world or go to the industry or something, the reverse is true. The outside world will will value those skills and your ability to, yeah, whatever they are, to work really hard or to, to dig into things or to research or to analyze arguments or construct arguments, right? It, it, and all of those things are really helpful or code, you know, all, all most all physical sciences degree now includes some element of coding or stats development or looking at that kind of stuff. So there's lots of skill sets that researchers have that they don't give very much weight to because academia as a whole doesn't give very much weight to. And MySpace communication skills is is often top of that list. You know, communication skills tops the lists of soft, inverted commas, soft skills that the industry wants every time it's always in the top five sets of skills along with you know time management and problem solving and not being an ass to work with <laughs> <laughs> so there's clearly a lot of demand from the outside world let's put it that way from the outside world for the skills you pick up in academia yeah but when you say the system sucks can i ask you to elaborate a little bit on that so i mean at the minute we're seeing huge numbers of people leaving academia in the uk uh academics have had their pensions cut quite drastically you know there's people who have been working in research for 20 years who've had their pension cut by nearly 50 percent uh, and on top of that there's a general kind of not everywhere some places are great to work some places are brilliant to work and some people have an absolutely wonderful time in, in academia but there is an awful lot of the, the kind of wider structural issues that we see in society structural institutional racism and ableism and discrimination of, of various sorts is endemic in academia as well. But there's other things, sort of lighter things, that I think come from the fact that, uh, particularly in the UK where I work, academia is old. These are old, big institutions that are slow to change. They are very, still very male, heavy and patriarchal, patriarchal in the way they are run. There are lots of habits and things that are just kind of weird bits of leftovers and status quo and habits and, and things that are done just because they're always done that way that don't have any real reason for doing them. That understandably frustrates bright young researchers coming through being like, you know, we should be doing this and, and academia is like, no, we've always done it this way. And I think there is this disconnect between academia and and the outside world in that the outside world has changed a lot in the last 30 years even the last 20 years since the year 2000 and and we've got we've got phd students coming through now born in the late 90s early 2000s or starting their phds now they grew up in a totally different world totally different world to the world that their lecturers and supervisors and, and professors grew up in but if you don't leave academia academia creates such a bubble around itself or can do if you get lost in the work and the research that i think you don't necessarily notice some of the other stuff that's been going on in the outside world and that causes a lot of difficulty a lot of change um there's also yeah there's just a lot of resistance to change i think there's a lot of resistance to new ideas there's a lot of resistance to i mean in my space i've had people be told that they are unprofessional because they wore a green dress to do a presentation and green is not a professional color and you know all sorts of bollocks like that it's just it it's just nonsense and it's all designed to to gatekeep to protect the people at the top and to mean that you know it's to make the people make you feel special if you're in if you're in the in crowd you feel special right because you understand the rules you understand the language you understand what's going on and you feel like you get it it's your space it's a, it's a happy little bubble where you get to be clever great but for anybody who's coming in from the outside and doesn't get that it's really alienating and difficult um not to mention crazy overworking practices and not being paid enough money and you know sometimes in every industry you're going to get people who bosses and managers who are who are awful um but that exists in academia as well but there is less often less 
oversight of supervisors and professors than there would be in say a corporate company where you've got a whole HR department whose job it is to kind of talk to you about that. I think there's lots of stuff, there's lots of stuff about academia that's great. I don't want to just be academia hating. I love it. I love working with researchers. I love working with research as a kind of concept. I think lots of the systems that are in place and hangovers of institutions that are old mm. get in the way of doing interesting and new and creative and crucially kind of supportive and safe things that make people feel welcome that makes sense there's an element of these traditions and these habits which is nice and interesting and it makes universities what they are but do you think that in general some of these institutions perhaps need to align themselves with the outside world more openly instead of focusing on themselves so much Ah. Oh. I don't, I don't, I think, I'm not sure I'd use the word aligned. Um, I think they should not necessarily focus on themselves so much, but they should certainly be more, take ideas from outside. Mm. So, so reimagine what academia could be. So not, don't just copy what everybody else is doing, because academia is a, as you said, it's kind of a really interesting space. It's a slightly weird, unique industry in some ways, but being, you know, digging your heels in and doing things the way they've always been done is not the way to keep going forwards but looking around seeing what everybody else is doing what's working in other spaces what's not working in other spaces you know what are organizations doing to look after their staff better what can we learn from that what are organizations doing to be more inclusive what can we learn from that and on what what happens is the same thing that happens in any industry right happy staff produce good work for an industry like academia that prides it's the, the the kind of yardstick for success is the output of the work right it's it's the research paper the number of research papers the quality of the research papers it's the, just imagine how much better that output would be if everybody was having a great time like it just it's it's a really funny i've never understood this both in academia and in in commercial organizations this idea that if your staff aren't happy that's okay not just from a moral and ethical standpoint that we should treat people well, but because you're, the work you produce or the work they produce is going to be that much better because they're enjoying what they're doing. And, and this is, I mean, academic presenting for me is a microcosm of a lot of these issues. Hmm. Um, a lot of these things come into play. The power dynamics are funny. It's a scary space to be. You're presenting your work. It's People find it very intimidating. They find they can't be themselves. It's not very accepting of, of different ways of doing things or different ways of speaking. And so it's a, it's a sort of a little micro environment, I think, for a lot of the things that are wrong in, in the wider systems, not all of them, but, but some of them. And how much better would an academic conference be if everybody just had a great time, if the speakers really enjoyed it and the audience was really friendly and supportive and people were nervous, yeah, but they felt buoyed up by the audience and kind of cheered on, rather than, you know, as is often the case, worried that they're going to be torn apart or, or, or you know, put down because of some strange sort of power play within within the system. So I think looking outside, looking at what other, being willing to adapt, being willing to look outside and adapt to be creative and take ideas from elsewhere in order to improve what academia is doing. And, you know, some of the, I meet some great people, great supervisors and PIs who are doing this sort of stuff, who are looking outside, who do want to make new work environments and kind of change the culture and are having success because they are doing so, you know, because they're producing good stuff. So whether it's because of the hindrances of the institution or it's down to the individual, do you think that a lot of academics struggle with communicating their work to a wider audience? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and I think it's a combination of training and support. As we kind of mentioned earlier, nobody tells you if you, if you, you know, you go to school and then you go to university and then you do a master's, then you do a PhD and then you do a postdoc and then you go to a lab and you, you know, eventually, you're just in that system the whole way through. Nobody tells you how to do communication skills unless they've deliberately brought someone like me in. So there's no training and support. There's a kind of chronic lack of training and support for this stuff inside the institutions. But also what I mentioned earlier about the idea that uh, a lot of the language academics use is a combination of specialist language to let specialists talk to each other fast. That's what jargon and specialist language is for. It's a way for experts to communicate efficiently with each other. But what happens then is a really interesting thing called the curse of knowledge, which is when you become an expert in something, it's very, very hard 
to remember what it's like not to be an expert in something. And so you forget, basically forget other people don't know the same stuff you know, which means that whenever they go out and talk to other people, they treat them as if they know this, they're all, everybody's experts. And of course, everybody isn't expert. Even the person in the across the corridor from you doing a PhD in something similar but slightly different is does not know the same stuff you know. And and the language the way the language and the concepts and the ideas are communicated often suffers from that curse of knowledge, meaning that it's quite impenetrable to people who don't know your stuff, your thing. You know, my favorite phrase is doing a PhD is knowing more and more and more about less and less until you know absolutely everything about basically nothing. Um, which is great, but it, it applies for, you know, all the way through the research journey and, and beyond as well. But that can make it, you know, that curse of knowledge is just a, it's a psychological thing that experts, all experts have to deal with, but it can make it difficult to talk to people outside of academia and inside academia as well. And then, as I mentioned before, a lot of the, there's the kind of hangovers and the institutional sort of weird psychological stuff about I get to be in the group because I understand it. That makes me feel clever and I'm special because I'm in the group because I understand it. And, and and so some of the barriers and the obtuseness to the way academics communicate is preserved through people wanting to, you know, either probably subconsciously wanting to keep the group, the group and not interact with outsiders and, and because I'm special, I'm clever, you know, I'm the one who gets it. And that gets in the way of communication as well. I think you've picked up on some really interesting points there that perhaps a lot of people recognise from universities but might not be willing to voice. And especially what you mentioned about language, I know very well this situation of learning to use a specific kind of language because that's what works. It's perfect for the academic environment, but that doesn't mean it's perfect outside that environment. And you may put a very big barrier between your work or your research and somebody else's understanding if you have a habit of using these words because that's what you've learned to do in a university. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to challenge you slightly in the idea that it's perfect for an internal academic environment. Um, I'm not sure it is. I think a lot of the way academia communicates itself internally is is problematic as well. As I said, you know, the person across the hall doesn't, you know, if you're talking to a, a room full of 100 people who are all, I don't know, art historians interested in the 1700s art, right, they're all going to have some some commonality in the knowledge there'll be some level of base layer but then they're all going to split off into their own specialities and their own little bits and pieces mm. i mean if you just talk about your bit with your expertise there's going to be places where you miss people you know there's going to be bits where people don't quite know what you're on about or you, you make references to things and that's if we broke down all of those communication modules into, into simpler language i think internal academic communication would be a lot better as well the way that academic papers are written and i'm not a writer so my expertise here is a little bit more limited. But I, the, the academic papers are supposedly supposed to be written so that somebody can repeat whatever it is you've done, whatever experiment it is you've done. That's, you know, we know nobody ever does repeat papers because you don't get funding to repeat experiments, you only get funding for new experiments. So nobody ever checks anybody else's research. And so a lot of research actually is a little bit dubious. But the... <laughs> That's what they're for theoretically. And I think that's where there's language and this, this formality of language evolved because formal language gives you accuracy and specificity, which in theory lets somebody who understands that language repeat what you have done. But it also can obfuscate and it can cloud and it can make things more confusing and it takes longer to process words we aren't familiar with. So if you're speaking or, or writing in words that the audience is a little bit less familiar with or takes a little bit longer to understand that slows down that process of the audience understanding so i think i'm actually a proponent for simpler language in hmm. all contexts across academia the only one being specific technical terms when you're talking to another academic who understands what those technical terms mean but the filler words the words in between you know we should just i don't really see any reason why we shouldn't write more colloquially with the filler words, the words that don't need, not the technical language, because that does need to be accurate, but the other words, the way we phrase things doesn't need to be so formal and heavy handed. Yeah. So I'll just, I'll just throw that one back at you a little bit. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers, which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share.
I really like that image of the closed doors. I can imagine in a university department, and I've seen it myself, there's the corridor and there are the closed doors to the left and to the right, perhaps one at the very end. And you might think within one subject department that everybody understands what's going on, but it really is a question of closed doors. And there may be people with a few meters space between them and they have literally no idea what's going on within the same discipline. A very, very striking image and a very good point about making things more open and understandable so that everybody has a chance at understanding. Yeah, but it also, it, it, I, that's the point of it, right? If you can't, I used to, you know, I sometimes use the example, if you, if you cure cancer in a lab, great, well done, have a sticker. But if you, if you can't communicate that out to the world or out to a drug company who's going to turn it into something usable or out to physicians and clinicians who are going to understand how to use it and implement it, and then they can't communicate it out to patients to explain what's going on so the patients are happy to take the treatment, then you haven't achieved anything. You haven't kind of done anything. You know, if you are, if you're researching interesting bits of history um, about, I don't know, healthcare, and you understand it and you kind of get a better grasp of what would go on, you understand better the reasons and the motivations of the people involved. If you can't then communicate that out to a world of people with maybe some lessons in it about how we approach the world now, or understanding why it's interesting or important that we we do understand that, then then to some extent I think you failed because researchers primarily are paid by, at least in the UK, are paid by the research councils, which are funded by the government, which is funded by taxpayers. So the the tax, you know, the, the money to do this research is coming from a place. And, and I you know blue sky research is great. It needs to happen. It's important. But we should also understand why, you know, you should be able to communicate why doing blue sky research is important. You can't just say, oh, I do it because knowledge is, you know, an end in its own goal, in its own right. I'm not sure that is... I'm not sure that is the case with the amount of money and resources that get applied into it. I think research is hugely important and I totally support it being done. And I love the stuff that people study. I met a druid the other day who studies druidism and ancient death cults, or modern, not ancient, modern death cults, sorry. But that understanding of how those structures work and how those faiths and how those religions work and how those communities work will inform, you know, could inform are thinking in various elements and understanding about how how human society interacts and how people form groups and there's lots of stuff that we can pull out and we can learn from all of this that all of this research is being done and i think if you don't communicate your work you to some extent you're 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 leaving the work unfinished and i wonder if this phenomenon leads to a point for many researchers where if they don't know how to communicate to a wider audience they might very well say well you know what, the people who do understand me are the people inside this institution, inside this quite closed world. They're the ones who are going to give me recognition and say, you did a good job. And I'm just going to keep going in that direction for them. Perhaps if they could gain an understanding of how to speak to a wider audience, their work might be full of wonders to be shared with the world. All research is full of wonders to be shared with the world. You know, I this is what I spend my life doing. I get little insights, little windows into a whole bunch of different research. You know, I've, I've mentioned everything from cancer to, to, to druids and death cults today so far. And it's all fascinating. It's all cool. It's all really interesting. It all prompts other thoughts in people who hear them. Um, and But, you're, you know, you're absolutely right, is that people don't, people A, aren't encouraged to communicate because that's not the, the yardstick of success, although it is increasing a lot of particularly in the physical sciences now an awful lot of grants come with a public engagement uh, element you have to be doing some public engagement work to get the money which i think is really good um, and a lot of lots of research on the arts and kind of humanities side uh, builds communication in a little bit into how they talk about what they do and how they present it to each other and how they how they host things you know art research is really interesting because display and kind of galleries or performance are, are baked into part of how you do things so, so they work in a slightly different way yeah so yeah, I think academics do get you can get trapped in you know the whole system just tells you that you don't need to go out and talk it's slowly changing but you get trapped into this is how you talk to these people these are the people that matter this is how you talk you know this is the stuff you need to do that, that gets you ahead and and this is how we do that communication and it's it's done in a way that doesn't really make any sense for anybody and isn't that helpful the other huge bonus and um, i think so i kind of said that there's a, a an imperative to communicate your work maybe to the outside world but the 
internal academic communication as well is hugely important and we get trapped in these bubbles as you said that corridor with the doors and you don't you know if you're an earth scientist you don't talk to the druids and you don't talk to people studying societal change at other levels you don't talk to and 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 what happens is you get a lack of perspective you get trapped in a micro bubble inside your department inside your subject area inside the thing you are studying and so we miss there's a diversity of perspectives in the work and again that makes the work less rich you know there's there's loads of research out there funnily enough on how diversity of input diversity of thought diversity of experience enriches work and gives you new ideas and new angles of attack and new ways of thinking that are really powerful and if you don't spend your time communicating your work outside of your department or outside of your bubble or outside of your field even if you stay within academia but you don't go out to out to industry you lose that feedback you lose that give and take we don't have a a, a swirling you know universities could be this incredible swirling mix of knowledge that all informs itself and gets you know gets together and talks to each other and jumbles around and you learn new stuff and you've got new ideas and to some extent undergrad is kind of like that because you mix with people who are doing all sorts of different subjects as you go higher up the tree you tend to the diversity of thought that you are exposed to tends to reduce but by making an active effort to, to communicate your work you you will increase the diversity of your network, the diversity of knowledge and skills and backgrounds that your network has, and that in turn will inform the work you are doing and make it better and make it richer. I completely agree. And I think the earth scientists should always go and talk to the druids. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I think they'd get on. Uh, the groups I've met, I think they've got quite similar people. Um, <laughs> could be, a lot could of be. I, I love this idea that you picked up on of this swirling mixture of knowledge at a university because that's what it has the potential to be and that's why I was attracted to it in the first place because I felt I would be entering a world full of so many possibilities and something that would give me the chance to go from here to there to explore so many different subjects and this really why we're having this conversation in the first place a passion for the possibilities of knowledge and research and it would be wonderful to see that nurtured and allowed to grow even at the highest levels of academia uh, yeah it would be it would be great and i you know it's not a small challenge um there's there's lots of things in the way of it and there's lots of projects that do do this that try you know that try and work on this there was a big fad, a kind of fad for a while of crossing the the big fake divide which is physical sciences on one side and arts and humanities on the other so you get these these funky projects where arts researchers would devise a way to communicate the outputs from a bit of physical science which are quite fun but interdisciplinary science as a whole i think is on the rise there are you know, grant givers love an interdisciplinary project you know it's, it's absolutely they do and I work with a group in Newcastle who are an, inter an interdisciplinary group of, of health researchers and engineers and tech people and industry who looking at making little widgets to monitor how, monitor how people move around and how patients walk to better help inform them but they are their work gets informed by social science and that kind of stuff as well because you need to understand people's responses to new ideas and take off new technology and, and various bits and pieces and I think the more the more we do that, the more we build interdisciplinary teams and are less focused on creating tiny niches. And it's a difficult balance, right? Because to do the work, you have to become, you know, researchers are specialists. They are niche. It's what they do. And there is a huge value in that because they learn, they become absolute experts at the thing. But I'm not sure, you know, even, even having you know, the, the way the physical spaces are arranged, right? You could have a, that corridor doesn't just have to be people who work with bats um, or, or, you know, or whatever it is, that corridor could be a couple of researchers from a whole, you know, a whole different spectrum of things. So that when you're having coffee in the tea room, you're talking to folk with a different, different background. And yes, to some extent, it's convenient being able to nip down the hall and, and chat to your supervisor. But actually, if you are all being supervised in the same university, on the same campus then that's very easy and online communication is, is much easier after the last couple of years so that exists as well so i think we could you 
efforts you could make interesting efforts i think to try and deliberately put people with different perspectives and different areas of research in the same spaces together that's one of the nice things about my workshops is sometimes they're specific if i'm doing something for a school of engineering for example i'm going to get mostly engineers but within that there'll be people working in agricultural sciences and space engineering and water engineering and a whole bunch of stuff city planning kind of architecture engineering that sort of stuff <coughs> so you get a big you know it's very rare that i have a homogeneous mix in the training session so we get this big kind of array of research and, and some of the activities i do around storytelling are getting them to talk about their work a little bit and it's always really interesting to hear people like researchers are interested in research it doesn't really matter what the research is about they tend to just be kind of curious people and so they are interested in what other people are doing like you know what you said earlier that research research is full of gems of cool gems of information and, and stuff that you got oh, that's cool even if it's not connected to your work at all it's kind of interesting and fun we like i think i think research is again massive generalization but broadly speaking like learning stuff kind of regardless about what the stuff is we like finding stuff out you know, it's the demographic that listen to the no such thing as a fish podcast that's that's quite a strong kind of space and i think there could be some interesting things to do with that. I'm building my community, my online community, uh, which is called Con Unity, because I like a pun, is, is deliberately interdisciplinary because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to build a network of people to help each other with communication skills, presentations and writing and posters and stuff, but also to give them a network of diverse thought and backgrounds and, and different kind of geographical areas so that you can you know, at a very practical level, if you want to test your new presentation on a different audience to what you normally would, there's some people there who can, you can test it on who are totally different from your normal audience. But also you can have discussions about things. So, you know, we have one of the, the kind of connections that has been made that's really evident is health researchers doing the kind of science side of health and health researchers doing the societal people, social sciences side of health. And those conversations can be really rich because they're coming at the same problems from different angles and they can both inform different different takes on things. So yeah, I don't know, we could, it's a big problem. I think there could be interesting ways to change it. I, in my own little way, I'm trying to build things that do tackle that. But yeah, I think it could be a really cool, I've never said the image of swirling mix of knowledge before, but I like it. <laughs> same, I like it too. So very, very interesting possibilities there. Bringing everything together, tell us, what makes a good presentation? <laughs> I asked this on Twitter this morning and the answers from other people so far on Twitter are a mix, essentially a mix of education and entertainment. It's not quite my answer. My answer is that, or maybe that's true from an audience's perspective, from a speaker's perspective, from a presenter's perspective, a great presentation is one that achieves its goal, whatever that is. And this is one of the kind of fundamentals that I teach people is that if you don't know why you're doing a presentation, if you don't know what you're trying to achieve, you know, and there's, there's a whole host of things you can achieve. None are better than others, but you've got to know what you're, what the point of doing it is, right? It's a lot of stress. It's a lot of effort. It's, it's a faff. You've got to go somewhere, got to stand up and, you know, or, or talk to a camera or whatever. And you're taking up people's time, right? You are taking up their time. Why? why are you doing it what is the point what would you like to get out of it and uh, i told at the start that i can help researchers you know with the career ladder i think presenting and speaking is a really powerful way to boost your own career and boost your own reputation and, and kind of get a bit more of a profile for yourself so that's a perfectly good reason to do presentations um putting your research out there to get feedback is a good reason to do it maybe you want to teach people a specific thing there's lots of reasons but if you don't know why you're doing it you can't build a presentation that's effective because you've got no goal to aim towards so for me if i'm presenting if i achieve my goal then that has been a good presentation and all of the other things being interesting and engaging and funny and keeping audience awake and you know being charismatic or good to listen to or, or whatever all of those things are just in aid of achieving my goal because usually if you're presenting you can't achieve the goal if the audience has fallen asleep so so yeah so a successful presentation is one that achieves its goal and usually to do that we have to create something interesting and engaging because if they don't listen to us then there's no way we're going to achieve that goal really outstanding advice i think duncan in your email signature you describe yourself as the chaotic good for research presentation 
for those listeners who don't know tabletop gaming and Dungeons and Dragons, can you explain what you mean by this? So, so um, I don't actually know it comes from tabletop gaming and Dungeons and Dragons. Jordan told me that literally before this podcast. Um, <laughs> I just thought it was a cool thing from those posts that go around the internet. You know, chaotic as chaotic good and, and chaotic bad and chaotic neutral and, and I can't remember the rest. But for me, I was drawn to it as a phrase because what I think I'm trying to do in my own little corner of academia, my own little corner of specialism, specialty, where I have knowledge, I can help people, is push for some of that broader cultural change, right? You know, I would love to see presentations that are accessible, both in terms of different people's kind of accessibility needs, but also literally language, like make the language less mystifying and difficult to understand. I'd love to see a presentation culture where people enjoyed doing them and were supported and loved doing it because that would result in, in better presentations. I'd like to see presentations where audiences were all supportive and encouraging and helpful. None of this weird combative, you know, X factor gonna hit a big button and send you off because you're rubbish nonsense or you know it's more of a comment than a question you know these shouldn't be spaces for you to grandstand and show off yourself it should be spaces to enjoy sharing the work that the researchers putting out and celebrating what they're doing and um, asking questions and helping them if you can but it should not be a place to put, put people down which so often happens but also a place that people can feel themselves and feel in their own skin and presenting is a really it throws that particular element into quite bright light because you're stood in front of a whole bunch of people there's lots of people looking at you that's sort of unavoidable when you're presenting and lots of people feel like they can't be themselves and most presenters aren't themselves anyway when I'm presenting I'm not totally myself I'm selected bits of myself right I don't show you all of me because that's not useful for communicating my message and therefore achieving my goal I show you like created bits and curated bits of me but I I don't feel like there's bits of me I have to hide, I'm choosing not to. And that's what I want. I want people to feel like they can be, you know what, I'm gonna share my personality and my goofiness and my geekery or my humbleness or my shyness. I've seen some incredible presentations given by quite quiet speakers, but there's this weird, like, you have to be a certain way. And particularly that means you can't be creative and you can't be fun. Uh, right, you know, TED talks were allowed to be creative and fun, but a proper academic talk is not is not allowed to be fun. It's not research if it's fun. Um, uh, again, the arts and humanities crew have a slightly different take on this to the physical sciences crew, which I find quite interesting. But yeah, I'd like I just I just like it to be a better experience for anybody, everybody, and I think you know, the, as I say, uh, this is this is my small corner of academic culture change. Um, but I'd like to people to feel themselves. I'd like more creativity. I'd like more fun and silliness and colour and less seriousness and more passion and sharing of joy of the work and joy of finding stuff out, being curious. Because uh, all the researchers I meet are those things. And then they feel like they're stifled into this box and they can't do it. So, yeah, the chaotic bit is because I, I feel a little bit like I'm trying to disrupt the status quo a little bit in my own small way. And and the good bit is that it's it's about encouraging people and supporting people and you know <laughs> I'm not here to to tell people to do it a certain way. It's about finding ways for them to be themselves and and share what they're doing and share themselves with their audiences. That's what creates powerful talks. I think is a really nice description of your style and your approach. And you actually mentioned TED talks there. You gave a TED talk on the power of storytelling in presentations we'll link to your website at the end of the podcast so our listeners can go and check out the talk which, which they should do because it's wonderful but you. would you just tell us a little bit about that talk uh yeah so it was it's for tedx newcastle uh, university and it was really fun that i got asked to do it and i had to think about what i wanted to talk about right it's a ted talk so you've got a little bit you've got to be a little bit you know pretentious and over the top it's a ted talk um having said all the stuff i've just said you know ted is a a really interesting space and you have to you know you've got a point to make and be a little bit over the top with it um but yeah i, I wanted to think about what was important of the stuff that i talk about and i think about what elements of that are important for a wider world and a wider society and the theme was there was a theme to the, to the whole day i think it was something like change of the future or something something about about changing what we do or building a better world something like that 
And yeah, and so I was thinking about what I talk about and, and storytelling, I talk about an awful lot and train people in and the power of storytelling, what it does, but storytelling fundamentally influences and controls almost everything about the way humans work and think and are and the way society constructs itself and the narratives we tell ourselves and the narratives that society tells us inform an awful lot of things. And so it ended up being a a presentation, including a story, quite a lot of it is me telling a story, or telling the story of storytelling. Um, it gets all quite meta because I thought that would be fun. And about how storytelling binds us together in shared experience, really. And that shared experience is is a powerful thing in, in exactly the same way a presentation binds the speaker and the audience together in a shared experience, in a shared moment. And that sharing of experience is one of the things I think that makes humans better. It makes us connect with each other. It makes us empathize with, with maybe it's an experience we haven't thought about before, or haven't come into contact with before, we empathize with that. And storytelling allows us to do that. And that just that just felt like quite an important thing that I could say. And I hadn't really seen it said in other places. You know, storytelling has been talked about a lot in TED Talks. I, I make a kind of silly joke at the start about the fact that probably heard storytelling can change the world because every TED talk about storytelling says that storytelling can change the world. Uh, Mine's exactly the same. Uh, but I thought it was a really, it was an interesting thought that we are, we're bound together through the stories we tell and the stories we're exposed to and the stories, particularly culturally and societal stories that group us, stick us together and, and bind us together. And being aware of that is quite interesting and, and looking at how that can be changed altered, manipulated, whatever, to try and make a better world. I can confirm that the meta works really well in the talk. <laughs> Thank and you. I is, put quite a lot of thought into it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's funny and it's, it's very interesting when you understand the reflexiveness of what's going on in that talk. And I love the way that you connected the present to a very ancient past and all of it through storytelling, which was your objective. It was objective, yeah. It was. It, I, I guess the theme of it was this idea of connection. You know, presentations. It was what makes a good presentation, and, and connection is the thing. If you don't have connection with your audience, you're. Uh, it's, there's sort of no point because you're not going to achieve your goal. They're not going to have a good time. Meh. Um, so generating connection with your audience and generating human connection with your audience is a really important thing, and it's also the thing that stories do and have always done. Um, and and I, tr I trace a very old set of stories. Uh, the kind of history of a very old set of stories. Um, trying not to give spoilers for anybody who's now going to go and watch it. Um, very old set of stories from from the kind of start all the way through to modern times, and that connection is a a key bit of the whole thing, really. Yeah, so I'm glad it worked. Absolutely, and I thoroughly recommend to our listeners that they go and have a listen to it because it's a really, really good talk. Duncan, who is inspiring you these days in your work? So this falls into into a couple of categories, really. Um, weirdly, I don't actually spend much time around other presenters uh, or other. I do find, spend time around other trainers, but not necessarily for what I do, because if I do, my imposter syndrome <laughs> hits hard, and I, you know, I everybody's doing everything much better than I am, and yeah, everybody's more of an expert. They read more stuff, and you know, all of that stuff hits, and I just find it happier for my head to do my thing but there are a bunch of people that i i look up to i look up to a the researchers i work with who decide they want to be good at this often from a place of feeling very insecure or unconfident that's not a word but unconfident in in what they're doing and, and presenting and, and they take that journey with me and i can help and support them that takes great guts and courage to decide you're going to do that so i look up to folks who do that and the other people working to you know, try and change the academic culture for the better. There's a host of people uh, working in different spaces, working in the in the kind of wider, bigger issues that we've talked about, as well as smaller spaces to try and make things different and better and kind of just improve stuff. And then there's there's another group of people who are doing who are running small businesses because seeing other people be successful running small businesses is is inspiring. And sometimes I get, oh, why aren't I doing that? But it also makes me interrogate what I am doing. What does it mean for me to be successful? You know, is it just about building a business that makes money? Is it about achieving something else? And I think I've settled down on a combination of the two, but it's mostly about paying the bills and having 
a lifestyle I, I enjoy, but also, yeah, making a difference, helping individuals and, and maybe slowly impacting and changing culture. But yeah, there's people like Zoe Ayres on Twitter who are doing incredible things with publicizing mental health and supporting mental health in the academic world. Folk doing similar things for accessibility or LGBTQ inclusion or black and brown people in academia and fighting those fights. Those are very good people to look up to, I think. Anybody who is working to change a system that needs to be changed for the betterment of other people is, yeah, is kind of who I look up to. So finally, Duncan, how can our listeners reach you if they're interested in learning more about what you do or indeed in seeking your help with presentations? So you can get in touch. You can drop me an email, info at duncanyellowlees.com or find me on Twitter at D underscore yellowlees. And there's a bunch of stuff we do. I've got online courses you can just sign up for. You can find those through the website. You can just you can just do those. Then there is the community that I'm running, which I'm going to take this opportunity to pimp out. We are, as I've mentioned, a totally interdisciplinary community looking to support each other in creative and slightly different kind of culture around presenting and speaking as well as building skills and competence it's a mix of researchers from all levels but also some folk who work researcher developers or people who work in public engagement and science communication so folk who have uh, an expertise in creating these projects or working on these skill sets uh, with you it's a big online forum space it has a huge tips, knowledge, and library database for learning stuff. It has access to courses that we think are really good, so you don't have to search around YouTube for ages finding things that are really good. And yeah, we do events and socials and things to get to know each other um, because it's about building that diversity of network as well. So you can get involved with that. You can get all of these from my website. The community is up there. And as are my online courses, as is my email address. And if you work for a university and have a team or a group, I can come and do workshops for your team or for your group or for your whole university, if, if you'd like that. Yeah, otherwise, follow me on Twitter. I might put out, or on LinkedIn, I put out lots of stuff all the time, tips and thoughts and threads, and, you know, a lot of the rambling I've just sort of talked about now will find its way into some sort of a thread, I'm sure. And, uh, yeah, I just look forward to connecting with people. You are very active on social media with these lovely little comments, just provocative little things that get people to think about how they can improve what they're doing. Which is really nice. I'm trying. Uh, it's just it's just trying to keep it in people's heads. You know, I, I'm not everybody thinks about this 24 seven mm -hmm. like I do. Um, but hopefully, you know, when somebody's putting together a presentation, maybe they see a tweet from me saying, "Yeah, have less text on your slides," and that puts less text on the slide. And that, yeah, one step at a time, John. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you very much for having me along, John. It's been great. For more on Duncan, you can find him on social media or at his website, duncanyellowlees.com. And to listen to research on all manner of subjects, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. <laughs>